0: When we're looking at the teams that we're going to invest in, you don't want everyone to think exactly the same. (laughs) You want people obviously with different skill sets, but also that are able to challenge each other positively, where they bring different perspectives, but that they can work through those perspectives and figure out the best way forward for that company. So it's something that is very important.
1: Kirsten Leuter spent nearly two decades in tech transfer at Stanford University and the German Cancer Research Center before joining Osage University Partners, where she is partner for university relations. She joins us on the podcast today to talk about why diversity is important for a VC investor, why it's the people that make tech transfer such a great career, and why it is impossible not to be an optimist working in this field. Yes, then thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Such a pleasure to be here and good to talk with you.
1: To start with, I'd like to ask if you to give me a bit of an overview of the organization. So in your case, OSAGE University Partners, maybe give me some headline figures as well.
0: Sure, absolutely. Always happy to talk about OUP or OSAGE University Partners, which I think sometimes with the acronym OUP can be confused with uh, other UK organizations. <laughs> so if I slipped into OUP, people will know why. Uh, It's just what we typically call it. But so Osage University Partners, I joined Osage University Partners five years ago. The fund itself has been around since uh, around 2009, 2010. We're a venture capital fund that invests in startups that have their origins with academic institutions. We partner with academic institutions around the world. I would say that the Most common place that we partner, obviously, is in the United States, since that's where we started from. But we do have partnerships also with academic institutions in Canada, the UK, Israel, and Singapore. And what we're looking for is, obviously, investment opportunities out of these academic institutions. Uh, We like to say that we invest in all stages, all sectors, which means we invest anywhere from seed to pre-IPO rounds of these companies. And we invest anywhere in deep science where the universities are innovating themselves. So we have both a life sciences investment team, as well as a tech investment team to kind of cover that gamut that we see out of these academic institutions. As I mentioned, we've been around now for just over a decade. And so we actually are on our third fund. So we had a first fund that was a $100 million fund, a second fund that was a $215 million fund. And now we're on our third fund, which is a $273 million fund. And across those funds now, we've made investments in over 100 different companies. Wow. So yeah, it's, it's quite a few companies that we're keeping track of. Not all of them are still around in the form, obviously that we originally invested in them. Of course, yeah. <laughs> You know, some have exited, some have not, you know, had any sort of exit, et cetera, but a lot of them are still alive and working towards terrific products that they're either are selling or going to be selling. And we typically, so just to give you a little bit on the numbers that we, we like to invest, in the current fund, we typically like to invest in a first round in a company of 2 to $6 million and then reserving 2 to 3x to follow on in future rounds that the companies may be raising. And then in this current fund, the $273 million fund, which we call OUP3, we expect to make investments in around 40 companies or so.
1: Okay. Well, I know you're, you're not involved with the actual investment side, but what does your mm-hmm. job entail at oup
0: Right. I have such an interesting job. I don't think I could have ever found a more interesting job than what it is I do now. And my background is in technology transfer. So I did technology transfer for almost two decades before I joined OUP. And so it was quite a leap for me to go into this venture capital organization where my primary purpose for being at the firm is obviously these relationships with these academic institutions where we're sourcing the companies that we invest in. And so my job entails maintaining and enhancing the relationships that we have with these academic institutions, as well as then scoping out potentially new institutions that we would work with as well. The maintaining and enhancing those relationships is just such a wonderful, interesting job because I get to work with, you know, having come from tech transfer where, you know, the people you work with are just terrific and working with Autumn is fantastic as well as other of these tech transfer organizations around the world. You know, these people become your second family. So now not only do I get to work with, you know, people when I see them at autumn or other events, you know, which is how I kind of worked before when I worked in tech transfer. Now I get to see these people. That's part of my regular job all the time and talk with them about, Hey, here, here's what's um, affecting technology transfer. Here's what's happening with new ventures across academic institutions or regionally in certain areas. And what are the issues they're seeing? What are the programs that they're implementing? And how can we help with that? And so the programs that we've come up with are ones that either help address technology transfer issues that they're potentially seeing or the new ventures that are coming out of their institutions. And so we have a very robust webinar series that we do on different topics in these areas. Actually, we just had one yesterday that was a bunch of Life science, corporate venture capitalists who talked about what they do and what they see and what they look for and how they're both the same and different from traditional venture capital organizations. We have another one coming up soon on angel uh, funding, pre seed and seed funding. And then we're going to have one actually that's more towards the tech transfer side, where we're going to actually have a series of webinars on licensing to startups 101, but actually from the perspective of those who haven't gone through the licensing process. So this may be faculty members or graduate researchers, etc. And so we're trying to impart information that may be useful for them when they go through this process, perhaps for the first or second time at their university. So that's just one example of the type of programs that we put on. But I'll let it, because I could go on for hours (laughs) about this if if you ask me to.
1: So (laughs) I'd be quite happy to have you for hours. So How has the pandemic affected you? I mean, I I assume you talk to everyone on Zoom as we all do, but are there any changes you think will be permanent?
0: I've been really amazed at how well everyone has shifted to working virtually for the most part. I know that there are some offices who are back in the office, but they still have a lot of it's not kind of the usual congeniality, you know, get get together in the kitchen and talk with each other type of thing. It's still very separated from each other if, if they are back, but. Most people are still working remotely, but they're talking with each other. And one of the things that I hear from people, and this isn't so much my job, but they like negotiating, for example, over Zoom in some ways, because they actually see the person rather than before they were often doing it over the phone. And just hearing someone's voice is different than actually seeing the person. Now it's not in person, obviously, but seeing the person's face as you're negotiating with them. But for us... It's in some ways the same way is that when we have these calls now, we're zooming with each other, right? Rather than necessarily talking over the phone. For me, a large part of my job until March was traveling. I was traveling, you know, a week and a half to two weeks a month almost. And that is quite different now that I'm not visiting all of these academic institutions in person and I wouldn't be able to anyways. They're not, <laughs> they're not holding anything that I can go to. They're not all conglomerating. So it's different, but I do feel, and one of the things that we've been doing actually is forming more small groups of people who have like interests and allowing a platform for them to talk with each other. And that's been really interesting and rewarding to see them be able to share their issues around certain things that they're dealing with. So it's different. And I'm hoping that some of these things last, for sure, because I think that being able to talk with each other about our issues is really, really important to get perspectives. So those are some things that I'm hoping that will last, but it is hard to fully replace that in-person contact with people who you do consider to be really good friends and, and, you know, your second families.
1: Yeah, it still feels being cut off from people if you you have Zoom. Yeah.
0: Yes. uh, Yeah. Right.
1: You were one of the people who help pull together Equalize 2020. And I've talked to Nicole Mercier on this podcast. So if people want to know more about that, I highly recommend going back and listening to that episode. But clearly, you're passionate about supporting women faculty. What does this look like from OUP's point of view? And is there anything that we can do to improve the situation?
0: Yeah, so Nicole and Kristen Otto from WashU were the Real heavy lifters <laughs> behind Equalize. And we were very fortunate that they asked us to participate in the event. And actually, we have just, I think that you probably know this because you just talked with Nicole, but we've just announced that, you know, this, the next iteration of Equalize for 2021, which is going to have even more bells and whistles than last time, including an educational, hopefully, and, and networking component to it. I think everyone recognizes the importance of diversity in pretty much anything people do. But that is obviously uh, true in the startup world. One of the things that we look for, for example, when we're looking at the teams that we're going to invest in, is that you don't want everyone to think exactly the same. (laughs) You want people, obviously, with different skill sets, but also that are able to challenge each other positively, where they bring different perspectives but that they can work through those perspectives and figure out the best way forward for that company. So it's something that is very important. And it is something that you know, as you said, I am incredibly passionate about have been for a number of years. And even though there are a number of programs that, you know, I've worked on that particularly have to do with gender diversity, things that we've been gaining from some of that insight are applicable across diversity. And so, you know, it's something that we will continue to work on and look at. I think one of the hardest parts behind Even figuring out the status of where people are at with regards to diversity is just data. And fortunately, people are now making the efforts to collect that data as a way to check yourselves, right? On this. And so that's one step is, you know, having the data and this, you know, the other steps are programs, increasing your network, making sure that you have pools that you're looking at that really do contain diverse prospects. So, yeah, it's very, very important.
1: Is there, I know you said you invest mostly in the US, but internationally as well. Is there a particular geography market that does well at it, or maybe not well, but better at it than others?
0: That's a good question. For me, I guess I'd need to look at data because I don't know what the data is. That's a really good question. I, I should look into that because I don't know. And then, do you mean within the U.S. itself or across the world? Um, uh, you know, in different I places. I mean, anywhere. Anyway, they... Like,
1: I am the U.S. is a it's a massive yeah. country, so I imagine there's different places that would have different approaches and, and might do better. But also internationally, I was wondering: mm-hmm. is Canada better than the U.S. or is the U.K. better? But I feel just mm-hmm. the fact that you don't know off the top of your head already is an answer in itself as well. Not a right. good answer, yes, but I think
0: so. Not, not, not a, not a great answer. No, absolutely not. But it is something that, right, we need the data to look at. And that's a good point. I'm going to look into that to see where, where people are doing well. But there have been some really terrific articles, obviously about different things that people can do, but also the why behind why you are doing that itself as well. And you need to be able to point to your values that you have, hopefully as a firm. And I think that's a lot of what you can do for that too, is say this is in line with our values as well. And um, so I'm very hopeful, like I'm an optimist anyways, (laughs) but I do feel like people are going in the right direction and there's some real change happening.
1: That's, I'm glad to hear. You know, from the people I've spoken to, that very much seems to be the case, but it's always good to have that reaffirmed. You were in tech transfer for uh, about two decades before you joined this. You started at Stanford. You worked for Awesome for a while. You were at the German uh, Cancer Research Center as well for I think a year or so. What's made you stick around tech transfer and specifically what's made you join OUP? And are you going to go back to a tech transfer office or is this it now? I know there's a lot of questions in one.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's quite all right. I, I think I can remember most of those. So because I was in tech transfer so long and I started in the 1990s, like a lot of people back then, it wasn't like my career goal to be in tech transfer. It was absolutely a serendipity that I ended up there. And I had planned to do something totally different with my life.
1: We all do. I <laughs> and <think>. I
0: ended, <laughs> Yes, right. But it was the people that initially made me stay. I loved the people. So I, worked, I was temping in the office at Stanford and they offered me one job and I turned it down because <laughs> I... I figured I was going in a different direction in my life and I didn't want to stop that. And then they offered me a second job and I took that one. And it was because I've been temping so for so long in the office, I realized I really like these people. <laughs> and I, this is interesting what they're doing. I'm hearing a little bit about it now. And, and I just happened to have the right background because I had a background in biology. Now, I only have an undergrad degree. I know a lot of people who are out there in tech transfer now, you know, have PhDs, et etc. I have a, an undergrad degree in biology. And so I just happened to have the right scientific background for our office to be able to take a job in the office. So it was initially the people who were the reason that I stayed. And then as I started doing more of the work and meeting with the faculty and the grad students and the postdocs, just for the most part, such lovely people who were so earnest about what they were doing and really wanted to see something happen with it. And then honestly, the people at the companies and the startups, et cetera, they just really have, for the most part, the best of intentions for what they can possibly do. And that just resonates with me as a person, that here you are amongst people who are all trying to achieve the same thing, which is to see these technologies move forward and make a positive impact in the world that's why I was there for 20 years. And honestly, I will tell you, I never thought I was going to leave. I thought tech transfer is my life. This is this is going to be my career for the rest of my life. And in some ways it still is because I still like <laughs> I'm working with all these people. I did not think I was going to leave. And this opportunity came up and I originally thought, well, I'm not going to leave. I love my job. But the thought of being able to work with people across academic institutions in the field of technology transfer and new ventures. I'm like, well, that just even opens up what I love even more. (laughs) So that's why I ended up making the change. You know, the same thing. There's no way I could have moved anywhere if I didn't think the people were just fantastic. The team that you work with is so critical to you enjoying your day-to-day job. You know, I don't rule anything out, but I am incredibly happy where I am. So (laughs) I get this wonderful cross section of everything that's happening in technology transfer and new ventures.
1: I get that. Even from where I'm sitting, it's wonderful to be involved with so many different institutions. And yeah, my my predecessor actually went and he's now working for Oxford University Innovation. So he's kind of gone the other way and he's very much focusing (laughs) on that now. I think I I quite like the global view of what's happening.
0: Yeah. Well, and it is nice actually to see people in the community often stay in the community, even if they don't stay at the same institution, often staying within the community. And getting new experiences at other places, because as you probably get quite a view of as well, it's not cookie cutter how people do their jobs in, in technology transfer and, and new ventures. There are different guidelines and parameters and philosophies at different institutions. And then there's new areas that are being explored in technology transfer and new ventures all the time and different ways that their institutions and regional economies, et cetera, are saying, hey, We'd like to shift in this direction. What can you do? Or them coming up with different ideas for programs and things that could help themselves. And so there's just, it's a job that it's not going to just stay the same all the time. It's always new challenges being brought up.
1: Yeah, I think that's very true. And then, yeah, as you said, it's, it's different. If you're in the U.S., you got bar oil. If you're in France, you have to work with the SAT networks and it's.
0: Right. You know, Everyone. Right. And that was so interesting for me working over in Germany for a year as well, just to see where technology transfer was and how they were working with it there. And then I actually, so I went back and revisited almost 15 years later after I'd worked there. And honestly, I was astounded at the kind of the change in attitude by the researchers regarding startups. It was just so much more welcoming and that this was a a real potential career path, et cetera. There was already, you know, that sense there, but it did seem to me that there had been this mind shift, at least in certain places about don't necessarily need to be an academic, right? There are other directions that I could take as a possibility. So
1: if I look at investments in, in, in spin out specifically that we track, it's basically been an upwards curve for since we've been around since 2012, late 2012, early 2013. So it, I can easily imagine that that would also re- be reflected on on the ground in, uh, in faculty members. Where do you see the state of tech transfer funding in the US today? And is there anything that you would like to see improved? Do we need another OUP out there?
0: (laughs) So do you mean for funding of startups out of uh, Uh, academic institutions? Yeah. yeah, Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Well, so I mean, you see all the time, different groups approaching new ways of potentially working with academic institutions and new ventures. And so for example, there have been a lot of pre-seed and seed funds that have been cropping up that may actually address particular industry areas, that's terrific. I think that companies themselves and actually some larger venture funds have been figuring out new ways that they can become involved with academic institutions. And so you see that reflected on the academic institution side by having now these corporate alliance officers and strategic alliance officers, et cetera, you know, because a lot of, you know, a lot of the core research that comes out around the world comes from these academic institutions and people know that there has been this valley of death for a very long time between what happens at the academic institutions to, you know, potentially things entering research and development to companies that I feel positive that it's getting smaller. <laughs> like that valley isn't as great as it used to be. There are a number of different groups and programs and companies, et cetera, that are working to potentially address this. For example, the different Blavatnik funds and the Blavatnik fellow program at Yale are really interesting examples of that. I don't see this curtailing. I see this potentially growing in the future. To me, that's terrific. And honestly, for us, that's terrific because there's more going into making these innovations get to those next steps, wherever those next steps may be. Either it is advancing the technology within the academic institution itself, getting it into startups and having those startups funded where they need to be funded, bringing in outside organizations to help those innovations, get some more of that proof of concept research done. That's terrific. So my worry would be that any of that potentially doesn't end up happening or not happening. But again, I'm I'm an optimist. (laughs) The direction I see overall is positive. For
1: that I like having optimists on the podcast, it's much nicer than, uh, than this thing being down. I mean, this is about doomsday, yeah. This is about <laughs> celebrating the ecosystem and, and the people in it. So it's, yeah, I like optimists. I, I tend to be uh, more cynical about life in general, but this job has certainly taught me that um, optimism is the way to go. We're kind of coming up on the end here. Is there anything else that we haven't covered that you want people to know about?
0: One of the things that, you know, just overall that I talked about this a a few times recently, just because everyone wants to know, okay, well, how are things going during the pandemic? What does this mean for people? And in some ways, some, some of the data is just too early to say, but on the venture capital side, there is still a lot of money available on the venture capital side. And so I'm curious to see how it's deployed over the coming months. People were kind of retrenched a bit in the early onset of the pandemic, but that seems to have let go quite a bit. Again, the optimist in me (laughs) is going to say there's still a lot of opportunity that's happening. And so I'm curious to see how new ventures are affected out of academic institutions going forward, considering obviously the stall that happened in research for a little while, now kind of the rotations, et cetera, that are having to happen in labs um, in order to you know, keep social distancing, letting people do their experiments, et cetera. And then the job opportunities for researchers, the grad students, the postdocs, et cetera, going forward, what that's going to mean for them, and will that affect startups themselves? So we'll see, but I think that's an interesting thing to keep an eye on.
1: I did a quarterly data review a few weeks ago, and it looks like deal flow is very much up, obviously a lot of deals were kind of on hold for a few months so it, it remains to be seen whether that's just people catching up on finally signing deals or whether it, the boom is continuing but yeah i think it'll be interesting to see yeah in a f- i think six, it, six i think months, it will months time or so yeah yeah couldn't agree more optimism yes
0: optimism. right exactly <laughs>
1: <laughs> well kirsten thank you very much for uh, taking time out of your busy day and, and joining us on the podcast today it's been a real pleasure to have you
0: Absolutely. So, Thank you so much for having me. And um, it was a really enjoyable conversation. And I want to hear Nicole's now. If anyone has questions about OUP, or Equalize that was mentioned, etc. People are always free to reach out to me. And they can just find me on LinkedIn. I'm one of those fortunate people. There's no one else in the world with my name. (laughs) So you you can easily find me.
1: I find that's a good and thing sometimes. (laughs)
0: Yes. (laughs) Right.
1: (laughs) Amazing. Thank you, Kirsten. Thank you. Talking Tech Transfer is hosted by me, Thierry Healers. It is produced by Global University Venturing, a Morsonia Limited publication. You can find us at globaluniversityventuring.com, on LinkedIn as Global University Venturing, or on Twitter at GU Venturing. Our sound engineer is Mark Chatterley from In-Ear Production. You can find them on inearproduction.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an interview. We'd also really love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or if you share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. It really helps us grow our audience. You can also reach out to me directly with feedback. Just email tehilis at com. That is T-H-E-L-E-S at Venturing.com. Until next time, have a great week, everyone. Goodbye. <laughs>